0: You guys watching Curb?
1: Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about that later. We'll about that later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremy and I are starting a uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm parody Twitter account. I'll have to get you involved oh. in that. Oh, hell yeah. I'd be the, the, the whole concept is that it's Curb Your Enthusiasm, except uh, no one's rich like in the show, so they have to deal <laughs> with normal people problems. <laughs> <It's just> like... <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by not two, but three co-hosts this evening, today. My regular co-host, as always, Vice Chairman of the Council for the Paleo Erotic Arts, Jeremy Ruggles.
2: You always give me the weird sex things. I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that.
1: Yeah, that's just kind of how I think of you. You're like my weird sex friend, I guess. Damn it. Okay.
3: Sex type thing. (laughs) Okay.
1: And of course, uh, Fred Durst, lyrical apologist, Peter Cook.
3: (laughs) Rolling, rolling, rolling. Right here, right here. The biscuit is here.
2: (laughs) You really should have gone with break stuff yeah that that makes sense
1: give me
3: something to break
1: and then we have our special guest for this episode freelance sensual herbologist trevor coleman
3: hey
0: so
1: before we say who we're talking about this week i would just like to start by saying that this artist is a clear contender for greatest american artist of all time And inarguably the greatest living American artist.
3: Is Dan Fogelberg American? What? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that would be in in the running if so. (laughs) You know you're wrong.
0: (laughs) Save Dan Fogelberg. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Said
3: no one. So who who is this artist that's better than Dan Fogelberg, Sean?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, Peter. It is Stevie Wonder. And we're going to be talking about his 1985 record in Square Circle. 85 so Before we 85. Wow. This is a late period one for him. This is this is the record that you're still going to see around. Almost all of his other records except for like Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants and his 87 record, they just sell instantly when they come in record stores, but this one sits around because people just don't remember it quite as well, or they didn't like it, or who knows what. But uh, we're going to shed some light on this overlooked masterpiece, Mr. Stevie Wonder. So before we dive in, Jeremy, can you cue us up track one, Part-Time Lover? I can. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I'm
0: already snapping.
3: Was not familiar with that one. It was the hit, I know, but I didn't know that one. And initially, when I first put this album on, checking it out to research this episode, I was thrown off by Stevie Wonder, sounding like he's in the mid-80s. I wasn't used to him with that production and sound of that era. And I didn't like it initially, but now that that's the fourth time I've heard it, there seemed to be a little extra ingredient in there from one of the lines, too, that I don't think our listeners will necessarily have heard. But uh, I'm really liking that one. I, I, that one's coming around. I'm coming around to it.
1: I feel like this whole record really grows on you. Because, yeah, especially when you're more familiar with his classic 70s or 60s styles, this is it's a, a bit of a departure. But at the same time, the more you listen to it, the more I think you recognize that it's still got that distinct Stevie Wonder flavor to it.
3: Yeah, yeah, at first I was like not my Stevie Wonder, and now I'm like,
2: yeah. Get, bring it on Stevie. People like you is why this is in the dollar bin, Peter.
3: <laughs> I'm the reason for this <laughs> one. <laughs> you want songs in
2: the key of life part 2, but Stevie grew, man. True.
0: Oh yeah, Big Dog's got longevity. Just 80 Stevie. Saw that True. is. Just 80 Stevie. And the thing is, no was crazy about Stevie and Herbie is that they were already in the 80s in the 70s. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, 85, like, he was just already trying to make Part-Time Lover in, like, 75, but just didn't have the drums. He didn't have the technology. He even says, like, in the liner notes, Hotter Than July, he even, like, thanks Sony for just giving him this type of digital technology to kind of program those drums in that certain way. Like, thanks them. Because just, like, they've just been waiting on that kind of technology to make those songs and to have that sound that yeah just didn't emerge yet. But they're just so genius. They're such geniuses that they're already trying to have that. <laughs> you can hear some of those tracks, you know, on Songs in Key of Life or on uh, Dedication, Herbie Hancock, where he's just got, like, those, you know, big synthesizers making the and then playing over it and stuff on the on the keyboards or on the synth. It's just like they were just trying to get to that already, but it, they, they were just limited by time. Now you just got Stevie running free in '85, with the, with the <laughs> clavier and the Fairlight and the samplers. It's just like anybody knows that man I wasn't very surprised when he won his like 15th Grammy. You know that year. I
1: mean, yeah, definitely. Type. I think he's yeah. he's like pushing a hundred Grammys or something crazy like that for all the, the different things he's won and been nominated for. It's wild.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So I know in the '70s. He, Stevie had been working with a band that we mentioned on the Herbie Mann episode and neglected to mention their association with Stevie Wonder. That was Tonto's Expanding Headband.
1: Yeah, one of the original early synth pioneers, you know, taking this new instrument and being as experimental with it as they could. From what I had read, Stevie had heard some of their early records and was really inspired by it and then actually reached out to them. To collaborate with some music with him, and ended up recording a whole string of albums with them through the '70s. And I'd actually seen some interview footage of the Tontos guys at one point, and they were asked about like what was the process working with Stevie Wonder, and the way they described it was that Stevie just sat at the keyboard and kept playing, and they're almost randomly messing with the synthesizer settings, and then. When they found a setting that stevie liked he would just lean back a little farther while he was playing and they knew that was it he'd rip out a classic song and then they just mess with the settings again and they just did like four or five incredible records that way
3: yeah that's cool Crazy, trevor mm-hmm. you're familiar with tonto's expanding headband right
1: yeah yeah
0: malcolm cecil i actually heard a funny story about it one time about how i forget the studio it was like in l.a but Black Sabbath, they used to record there and rehearse at the studio before, like for the first two albums. And then when they came back to L.A. to record volume two, Sabbath volume two, their room that they used to rehearse in and everything actually got turned into that room with Tonto for, for Stevie Wonder. <laughs> like, they, they, they moved all the synthesizers into that room so they didn't have it anymore. <laughs> So they had to like move something. Else. I would. Yeah. It was like at that same time, like seventy,
3: like three or seventy. I would have never imagined that connection.
2: That's like a metaphor right there. The synthesizers moving in and taking the guitar spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of collaborations, mm-hmm. is there anyone that on the most recent track on this first track that we featured who collaborated with Stevie of note on it? Oh, Luther, Luther,
2: Luther. Yeah,
4: that
3: is that him at the very beginning, the like the voice that comes in, bopping around at the very beginning of the track, before Stevie starts singing the verses.
0: Yeah, the scat I used to think that was the Sinclair when I was like younger. I used to think that was like the you know the do 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 you hear a lot like in um. He does it in, like, Land of Lala and stuff. That little, in, like, Rocket Love, Stevie, that little, like, synth he uses where it's like, do-do, do-do-do, that, like, noise. I don't
3: yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, that's on there. I thought I thought that was a synth, but it yeah, is It's a, it's a testament to his pitch, probably, that it's so perfect you think it's a an instrument.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Luther yeah. Vandross on the hook and on the backing vocals on this. And he had collaborated with Stevie a bunch before because Luther kind of got his start as more of a backup vocalist before making it big as a solo artist. And then this would be like post-fame Luther Vandross, so he's still coming back to just, you know, collab with his his old bandmates. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the other notable backup vocalist on this is Philip Bailey from Earth, Wind & Fire.
0: Big dog, Philip.
1: Yeah, legend. Wow. And then, of course, his uh, ex-wife, Cyrita oh, is on backup vocals and I think a few tracks on this record. Oh, really? Yep. Because, yeah, they were only married for like two years, but they seem to still like maintain a solid working relationship for a long time after that. This
3: is Stevie's ex, which
1: is? Yeah, Cyrita Wright.
3: Okay. She's got some hits, too. Mm-hmm. Written by Stevie.
1: they've
0: got some
3: hits (laughs) yeah he wrote everything on this album correct Stevie wrote uh, all the songs are written by Stevie Wonder
1: like written produced and recorded by Stevie and he plays most of the instruments like most of the synths Mm -hmm. pretty much all the drum programming and the bass is all him there's just like a little bit of added synth work here and there from other people a couple horn parts and guitar
3: yeah there's no tanto on this album Mm -hmm. nope Wow.
1: And the other wow. thing is, I, I guess all the live appearances he did in support of this record were mostly solo. Because he'd been wow. recording and producing a lot of his own work in earlier records, but then he always recreated it for a live full band. But this time he said he wanted to fully embrace the digital computer aspect of his music and actually recreate that live for people as well. That's sick. Yeah, it's yeah so this cool.
2: would have been... I oh, saw his shit. first fully digital album was in nineteen seventy-nine. Yeah, it's A Life of Plants. So at this point he's yeah, he's six oh, years into going all digital, so it's a new thing I think for many artists from the seventies going into the eighties trying to adopt to that sound, but he was like at the ground floor, like you said with Tontos and all that.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the the one thing I'd read about this record and I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, not while we were recording, so I'm just going to say it again in case. But uh, what I had heard is that he had written a lot of these songs several years before this record came out, and the reason it took him five years to actually make this record is because he felt the songs just weren't there and uh, didn't have the right technology yet to make it sound like he had it in his head. And that synth clav that Trevor was talking about was the main reason why he actually like finished this and got it together. It was one of the first synthesizers that you could actually program. You could record any sound you want, mess with the pitch and the tone and the duration, and then spread it across the keys and just make all new songs with whatever sound you wanted to put in there.
3: I think Frank Zappa did a lot of work with that instrument.
0: Yeah. In the eighties jazz from Hell,
3: stuff like that. Yeah. He's using that a lot. (laughs) I was was trying to place where I knew it from. And then I was like, Oh, jazz from hell, Frank Zappa. There you go.
1: Well, uh, you guys want to listen to another track? Yes. Let's do it. How about track two, I Love You Too Much? This might be my favorite song in the album, but that's, I don't know, it's a tough call. There's a lot of gems.
3: This is where I really started to hear the Stevie I Know.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. That song, from what I understand, is one of the examples in this record of a track that is 100% Stevie Wonder. He's doing all the instruments and all the vocals and production, recording everything for that track.
3: Are you sure Giorgio Moroder wasn't in there somewhere?
1: (laughs) The ghost of Giorgio Moroder. Giorgio Moroder was astral traveling for the recording sessions of that song.
0: That man was destroying the synth
1: bass Mm -hmm.
0: throughout the whole album. But this track, for real, that's the... That's the one
1: right there. It's so good.
0: When it when it comes to that bass line, it's like, what? <laughs> one of the interesting uh, takes
1: I was reading about this record was that it was kind of an accident that the song Part-Time Lover became the standout single from this album and is hmm. different than a lot of the other tracks on here. And that's partly why people kind of forget about this record a little bit because they know it of that song And if they like that song, they listen to the record and they're like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. And then there's people that just don't like that song and never checked out the rest of the record because of it. Whereas I think that most of the other songs on here, especially this one, I Love You Too Much, are much more interesting than the singles off it.
3: Yeah, I'm coming around a part time lover. And I think Trevor had said before we started that there was a nostalgia factor for that one, knowing it as the hit. But the rest of it definitely grew on me even more than that one has uh, by the second or third listen. And this song in particular is like classic Stevie in my mind.
1: Yeah, the, the other thing I kept thinking about with this record is there's a lot of earlier Stevie stuff where he gets so much credit for just being so ahead of his time with the early synthesizer production and being early embracer of computer-programmed music and things like that. Whereas this record to me feels like him perfecting that style of music instead of just completely reinventing things which is maybe why he doesn't often get as much credit for this record and that and just like there's there's so much amazing material that this man has already recorded that in like you know soundbite culture there's just no way to talk about the deep cuts anymore mm-hmm. after you got so many legendary records
0: and also in that culture of people just not listening to whole albums and you know really like they just you just listening to these to the, the singles and individual songs you know yeah i'd say
3: there's a few yeah. few artists still transcend that i'd say kendrick lamar is still like when they they come out the album is an event when his albums drop but by and large yeah mm-hmm. it's like the album as an art is largely
2: lost yeah this would be a weird album to approach just like any song you listen to on it If you only heard that song, you would have a totally different perception of what you think this album (laughs) was going to be. Yeah, that's kind of true.
0: He's touching down on a lot of different things on this one.
2: And I think, yeah, I think it really was
0: like a he was building up to that, to those like all the, the Stevie from like Hotter Than July to this album is like all that stuff in between. Yeah, it really was leading up to just that perfect drum production, perfect hook, with this type of instrumentation, you know, to accompany that as opposed to a live band or like, and I feel like that, that those first five years of the eighties was like a lot of people trying to get adjusted to that Mm -hmm. writing off of program drums and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think I feel a little bit similar to this album as what we talked about with the Brothers Johnson record we did where no one talked about the record, but it really feels like just seasoned, absolute monster pro musicians coming back and just showing everybody how it's done.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: In the '80s, mm-hmm. yeah, totally.
0: Oh, wait, wait, which which one? Which, which brother Johnson record? Are you Out of control.
3: Uh, okay, yeah, which
1: was '84, yep. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, similar similar vibe on that. A lot of similar sounds.
3: Yeah, and I think that's how I felt yeah. about part-time lovers. That was almost more like kind of riding a wave of what other people were doing with synthesizers and popular music it felt like he was kind of you know stevie wonder i usually think of as paving the way and it felt like he was with that single kind of more riding what had been established in the 80s for that genre
1: yeah Mm
4: -hmm.
1: yeah but still just doing it in a more interesting way than anyone else the the other thing i was reading was that like the really common approach to this kind of music is very like a lot of really short jabs kind of thing where he's doing an amazing job of mixing some of those elements in with a lot of very long tone synthesizer work, which wasn't really happening a lot in this kind of up-tempo funk of that day. So it's still a really interesting take and a really interesting blend that only Stevie Wonder could really pull off.
0: And those variations on the drum programming for how long these songs are Mm -hmm. too. These like four or five minute songs, you know, there's a lot, you know, it changes up all those fills and stuff like that, that kind of come in like with these drums where maybe that was a newer thing, you know, in the mid eighties where just how precise programming those samplers and those instruments kind of got to be at that point with this album, you know, like those drums are just really just complex, you
1: know? Yeah. And they sound great too. Mm -hmm. He's not like trying too hard to make it reproduce an acoustic kit, but it still hits just as hard. It Yeah. It's so good. Mm
2: -hmm. Let's back up the bus and talk
1: about Steve Land. That's exactly what I was about to do, Jeremy. Let's go into some history see how much you guys know about the the long career of Stevie Wonder.
3: Little Stevie Wonder?
1: Little Stevie Wonder. Little so, he was he was born Steve Land Hardaway Judkins on May 13th, 1950 in Saginaw, Michigan. So, he just turned 70 years old like 2 weeks ago.
3: Or 4 weeks ago as of this podcast airing
1: yeah exactly <laughs> his mother lula Mae hardaway was a songwriter and actually helped co-write a lot of his hits in his teenage years including the songs i was made to love her and sign sealed delivered hmm. and wow. stevie in case people don't know was actually born blind um, as opposed to like ray charles who i think was five when he became blind and that was partly due to a premature birth and some just unfortunate decisions in the birthing process. So he was, he was born blind and then his parents separated when he was four years old and he lived with his mother who moved to Detroit. She went back to using her maiden name and changed Stevie's surname to Morris because of just like problems with relatives. And from what I understand, he's actually legally kept the surname Morris his entire life since then. At a young age, Stevie started to learn how to play harmonica, piano, and drums. of course played in the local church and then he started a duo that did performances on street corners and at parties until at the age of 11 he got to sing a song for miracles co-founder ronnie white and then white was so impressed that he took him into motown and had him audition for barry gordy and barry signed him right away at the age of 11 and they billed him as little stevie wonder they gave him a five-year contract with some really weird terms he all of the royalties he earned were put into a trust fund that i don't think him or his family could access until he was 21 and then they paid him $2.50 a week as a stipend for expenses which translates to about $21 today
3: damn Dang.
1: yeah so i didn't get like a time of details of exactly how that worked but if he couldn't get any money from the records he was making for the first 10 years of his career that just seems wild to me
0: yeah yeah probably it was probably like that for a lot of those people at that time like early 60s motown they were probably like moving that money around in a bunch of weird ways
1: yeah that's kind of my understanding of it is they did a lot to you know elevate all these black musicians and give them more exposure than they would have normally but still weren't giving them any better contracts than anybody else was
0: yeah yeah Probably because they generally couldn't if they were going to keep the lights on. Yeah. Something like that. At, at, at first, you know,
1: for sure. At first. Right. And then people, yeah. <laughs> and then they just got used to making all the money. Yeah. Barry. <laughs> <laughs> but His first few singles as Little Stevie Wonder were not successful. He put out two records under that name. Neither one of them did that well. And then his big break came in 1963, where he was sent... On the uh, Motortown Review, it was uh, touring the Chitlin' Circuit with a handful of up-and-coming Motown artists, and he did an impromptu encore performance of the song "Fingertips." That they ended up getting the live recording of and putting on a single, and it shot up to number one on the Billboard Pop charts. And he still holds the record as the youngest ever solo artist to be number one in the pop charts.
3: He holds it in his fingertips. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it's crazy that that worked because the the record's pretty loose. I mean, if you listen carefully, you can even hear the bassist asking what key the song was about to be in because he was the replacement bassist and they didn't know Stevie was going to come out and do this encore. And just, mm-hmm. just the fact that it was so loose and so cool became a huge hit for him.
3: Is, that, is, is he playing like a drum? Is he playing like a hand drum on that, Stevie?
1: Yeah, he's billed as like vocals... Congas and harmonica. Okay.
3: Yep. Yeah, I think I've seen that.
1: Huge hit as a 13 year old, and then was not able to follow that up with any hits from his records after that. Motown did this weird thing where they tried to market him as like a young teen heartthrob. He even, like, they gave him some featured appearances in a couple really cheesy beach and bikini movies that came out in the early 60s that no one cared about. And then they released an album in 64 called Stevie at the beach, which also didn't work. And apparently Barry Gordy was, had decided that he was going to drop Stevie wonder at that point. And uh, the producer Sylvia Moy, who had did a lot of work with Stevie over the years, convinced Barry to give Stevie wonder one more chance. And so then Stevie wonder dropped the little from his stage name. So it was just Stevie wonder and then put out two records in 1966 down to earth which is a really underrated early period record for him and one of the first times where he started getting kind of political and did like a bob dylan cover on it then he also put out the record uptight which of course was a huge hit for him and allowed him to stay on motown
3: and that's wild to think he was almost dropped
1: yeah and like it seems like that was not the only time where he was almost dropped like it's just it's so weird how motown seems to
2: operate is the Down to Earth is that the one with blowing in the wind? Is that the political stuff or?
1: I think that one's on there.
0: I don't remember any singles off that. What the singles were?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, coming out at the same time as Uptight, people just completely forgot about Down to Earth as soon as Uptight (laughs) took over the radio. You know, beyond Down to Earth, he did Place in the Sun, Mister Tambourine Man, uh, Lonesome Road. It's kind of first uh, early showings of having an interest in more like conscious music as well as still you know dropping these incredible soul songs
0: oh hey love i'm, so, I'm, sorry. I'm just like looking at it right now That's
1: he began pretty regularly starting to score more hits throughout the late 60s it was still very up and down some singles bombed some didn't and uh, albums were the same way But the other thing is he started transitioning into being a hit songwriter for Motown as well as keeping his solo career alive. He actually wrote the hit Tears of the Clown for The Miracles and also the hit It's a Shame for The Spinners, which I was completely not aware of before this. that's crazy. Yeah, and I guess he was partly doing that in a coordinated effort to renegotiate his contract once he became 21 showing that, like, look, I have all these hits as a solo artist and I have massive hits for other people. Like, you got to treat me right. Mm-hmm. And then another pivotal point of his career was his 1970 hit, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, was the first song that he ever completely self-produced, which also gave him the firepower of just proving that he was his own artist and making the right choices on his own. So he married his first wife, Cyrita, we mentioned before, in 1970. And then they worked together on his 1971 album, Where I'm Coming From, which gets a lot of comparisons to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which came out around the same time. However, it wasn't nearly as financially successful or critically acclaimed and definitely not as fully realized as Marvin Gaye's record was, but it was a a really interesting glimpse of things to come because that went further into the social and political commentary And it was also his first time messing with synthesizers, and that was the record where he had reached out to Tonto's Expanding Headband and started collaborating with him on that album. Expanding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, slept. That same year, 1971, was when Stevie turned 21, and he set a Motown precedent by basically negotiating the best contract of any Motown artist to date. It was a Mm -hmm. 120-page contract that gave him a whole lot better royalty rates and much more creative control on his records from then out, which he then followed by putting out easily one of the most impressive string of albums ever. You've got Music of the Mind, then Talking Book, then Inner Visions, then Fulfilling This First Finale, Songs in the Key of Life, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, Hotter Than July, and then In Square Circle, the record we're putting out now.
0: Also, the uh, Women in Red soundtrack, Dion Warwick. Totally. And a
1: lot of like features and production for other artists and things like that.
2: Including Roberta Flack.
3: Oh, well, he we worked with Roberta Flack?
2: Who we talked about last week.
3: What were you do with Roberta?
2: He did on the album Feel Like Making Love, he did a song, or wrote a song called I Can See the Sun in Late December. Yeah. Mm and there's like a gnarly like seven minute free jazz kind of solo that's that's probably not free jazz i don't know what you call it
0: he also did um perfect angel produced that whole album oh i didn't know that minnie ripperton
1: oh that's cool that's such a good album
0: yeah yeah you can listen to that album It's a lot of synth bass okay Mo art based stuff you can tell stevie Mm -hmm. but it's not under his name you know it's under El Toro Negro okay, because <laughs> because uh, a label, you know, right. obligation, right, stuff like right. that. But it's all Stevie. And, uh, and he's playing the keys on Loving You, the electric piano.
1: Okay. That's him. That's cool.
0: Stevie all over,
1: man. Oh, yeah. And one of those rare things where he was making all this incredible music and actually getting recognized for it, mm-hmm. he shares the record of the most um, album of the year Grammys. He got one for Intervisions, Fulfillingness, and Songs in the Key of Life. And he's also the only artist to make Album of the Year for three consecutive records.
0: That's insane.
1: The only other two artists that have three albums of the year are Frank Sinatra and Paul Simon. And when uh, Paul was accepting his award in 76 for Still Crazy, he said on the microphone, I'd like to thank Stevie Wonder, who didn't make an album this year.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. Stevie's the GOAT. Yeah,
1: because you know if Stevie dropped a record in 76,
2: it would have been better than Still Crazy.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I
2: did no other records come out that year? Is that what happened? <laughs> so what, did, Jeremy? I said, did no other records come out that year? Yeah,
1: it must have been a <laughs> light year in music.
2: <laughs> so what uh, <76. laughs> 76?
0: Yeah, they gave it to Paul. Damn. Probably like paul simon but i guess not i don't know i don't think I ever not just to paul but
2: like 76 paul still crazy come on <laughs> come on <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're not we're not paul simon fans over here
1: i mean he's he's got his moments but i don't know he's a little overrated but whatever i, I digress <laughs> <laughs> let's play another track which song do you guys want to hear i'm kind of between a few never in your son is really good spiritual walkers is really good
0: Dude, "Never in Your Sun" is the freaking heater.
1: Yeah, all right. that's so probably my favorite. So, all right, let's do that that's one then. So Track five, side A, "Never in Your Sun."
0: That's, that really is a track that you just show somebody. If they ask what In Square Circle is, you just don't even say anything. You just put that on. <laughs> Never in your son, you go.
1: It does kind of perfectly one. represent a lot of the elements of that record that we talked about that we love. You know, It's got the amazing synth bass. It's like a little bit of that Stevie tenderness, but super danceable at the same time, and the production is all good. Yeah, that's where and, it's And,
3: of course, his recognizable and classic harmonica playing
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: something on
2: that and like uh, the wacky chord changes that come out of nowhere but like they don't feel weird somehow also right his
0: chords are crazy <laughs> yeah. like his co- i don't know like just his, his chords are just like how you just like put those together just make that pop song man's not yeah. using normal chords
1: well, you know, when he was still Little Stevie Wonder, they tried to initially bill him as a jazz soul crossover artist. And I think when you think about his later records in that context, it makes so much more sense. He's he's such Absolutely. a jazz musician that can just mm-hmm. make those absolute dance floor classics.
0: Yep. He just sang too good to just be able to to, to go down into that. He was too good of a singer. Yeah. But yeah. it's just like, you know, you even got those examples like on, like Contusion, like Songs in Key of Life, that track where it's just a straight just like fusion jazz track and it's just he could go he could have went down that road all the way just like herbie and all those people but singing too good can't put that <laughs> voice to wait and the voice too beautiful yep well
1: and that's that's why he's the greatest living american artist maybe greatest american artist of all time
0: uh high key <laughs> no doubt
1: about it yep who's better
0: Name one. Exactly. Don't worry, I'll wait.
2: (laughs) I'll edit out the silence. Just imagine that the silence goes on forever, listeners. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because we're still
1: waiting. Man. (laughs) So that was all my uh, biographical notes. So we can kind of have some more commentary on this record and maybe kind of who Stevie was as a person and some of his uh, activism yeah well, totally
0: it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, who like was that person back in the eighties?
1: Yeah, for sure. But I mean, <laughs> I guess he really hasn't changed from all the the footage I've seen interviews and whatnot. He's, he was a fully realized artist and you know citizen of the world from a very young age, it seems like. Mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the political content and society commentary he was doing on these records just holds up so well today.
0: Definitely was that one just making those, making sure to to have that type of message. Last track on his album, all his all his albums, you know, are having that message on all of his albums for um, fifteen years. 15, yeah, <laughs> that. you know, going up like every Stevie album going up to In Square Circle and and characters is like has that protest song, has that one, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking if not if just one pro like direct no metaphors protest song You yeah. know, happy birthday don't drive drunk <laughs> don't <pardon.
3: laughs> that's it's funny wrong. you mentioned i don't know the song don't drive drunk but i i did have to uh in preparation for this episode i uh since it was an 80s stevie wonder album my before i listened to it my mind immediately went to the uh part in high fidelity where the like the customer comes in asking for I just called to say I love you for his daughter and Jack Black's character Barry is a dick to him about it and I <laughs> I wanted to check to see that what was written in Nick Hornby's book versus versus the movie and it's pretty similar uh, except he doesn't go uh, Barry doesn't go into the whole thing about like top crimes committed by Stevie Wonder in the 80s sub question is it okay to uh criticize a formerly great artist for their latter day sins and that whole thing that wasn't in in the book that seemed to be added for the the movie but Mm. i have to say that i don't know i i I just called to say i love you is obviously one that i think a lot of people dismiss but i don't hear anything that schmaltzy on this record really
0: Mm. that's a great i love that song called to say yeah I yeah you, i know but that's yeah don't drive drunk that's off the same album oh, so
3: that's what my point was is in the book he mentions that i know that we don't even have that single and, and barry's fucking with this guy just to fuck with him but uh i know the only one that we have in, in stock is don't drive drunk and it's been sitting here forever and oh. we haven't been able to get rid of it so oh.
0: <laughs> that's so all you want to like play yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah so that's a that's another political one though
0: it's in a way with that direct message, you know, uh, that direct message Stevie song, yeah, like or the 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 I guess like maybe that's not fully tied into it, but like I'm saying, no, no, it is. It's the last track. All those tracks are like that, or it's like don't drive drunk. Then what was it? Happy birthday on hotter than July, you know, black man. Where does living songs in key where does li-
3: living for the city fall on intervisit intervisions?
0: That's the third
3: track. Okay, so that's not, but that's definitely one of the more political tracks on that one, right?
0: Yeah, and then You Haven't Done Nothing, Fulfillingness, first of now, that's the one. Big Brother, he's got, he's got the Steve. Stevie's always got the protest song. He's mm-hmm. always got
2: it. Mm-hmm. I love the one on this album, too. It's, uh, it. it's called It's Wrong, and he just, he's singing the, it's in parentheses, Apartheid, and he's just like, apartheid's wrong. And then he lists other things that are also wrong. Mm-hmm. And I just love how it, like, there's no metaphor, like you said, there's no like poetic painting of it or setup. It's just like pure direct, like this thing is bad. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's a very bold move. You know, at the time with somebody like that with that type of platform to make those kind of tracks, but you know, people always say talk about that but yeah yeah to have that on it to make sure that you have a track with that kind of political commentary on your album every time is a very important thing to do absolutely with somebody with a platform like that you know and the thing is he's always talking about stevie he's always been the one to talk about he's like i don't i'm not the one who, who gives these speeches you know or or talks about it directly you know i i talk and i explain everything through my music you know he's the, he's the number one person always saying that and that
3: kind of reinforces that, you know, that that pattern that he has with his album. Speaking of yeah. patterns, but, I, I just thought of the fact that I think this would have come out. You know, that, that song has obviously the South African theme and some of those sounds. And uh, this would have been the same year as Paul Simon's Graceland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go back with Paul Simon.
0: Now we warrant the Paul Simon slam.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So all the backing vocalists on the song "It's Wrong" are, I believe, South African singers, and I'm mm-hmm. willing to bet Stevie paid them a lot better than Paul Simon did.
0: Oh yeah, or even credit them.
4: Yeah,
1: you know, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Graceland, rhythm of the Saints, <laughs> <laughs> Paul Simon, but Stevie, yeah, he's playing the Kalimbra on that one too, which is crazy because I thought that was like, I thought that was straight like samples. You guys ever seen that video on YouTube of like Quincy Jones and Herbie Hancock and like Herbie's showing Quincy Jones uh, the the Fairlight CMI and he yeah. just makes a beat for for Quincy right there and just starts like ripping the sin, like mm-hmm. it sounds kind of like that beat that Quin- that Herbie makes. It kind of sounds like it's like super polyrhythmic like that. It's like it sounds just like the "It's Wrong" song, you know, these wrong drums, but it's all like digital. But I think he just wait, wait, wait. Go back to the n square. Are they just doing background vocals? That's what I'm just curious about. You know, like was that I was mean, that digital or was that well, those
1: actual drums? I don't know because it just lists the background vocals and it says that Stevie Wonder did all the percussion on there. Oh so wow, he might yeah. have been using actual drums for it.
0: Mm, yeah, or it was like, what are the drums? It could have just been you know that really could have just been that. Fairlight, cmi
1: it's possible it's entirely possible back to his political commentary the one interesting thing i read from an interview with him was talking about how he feels it's really important for artists of his stature to recognize their position of influence and to use their platform but at the same time he was cautioning that you shouldn't expect too much from artists like yes they should use their platform but at the end of the day the it's the politicians who have been elected to do this job that should be the ones held accountable and that you need to put, like, equal energy into holding the people in power accountable. Which is, yeah, but
0: getting those people who are more interested in the Stevie Wonder album than getting bills passed in politics, I guess drawing their attention towards that, like how we did with, like, Happy Birthday and getting and really, you know, pushing the idea that his, that his birthday should be a national holiday, which was very controversial at the time with that racist president, John, Ronald Reagan, it's like that, that was important, you know, build that awareness. You know, a lot of those people, they weren't going to build that awareness for those people to sign those type of positions. Al Gore, he wasn't about to get these white people to start signing petitions. You know what right. I mean? So, right. yeah, that's what, I think that's big role, big role to play in that.
1: for sure and outside of this record this was around the same time when stevie was helping you know headline and put together band-aid and farm aid and these high-profile benefit concerts that were happening Mm -hmm. he was was all about making it happen every way that he could using his time and influence and resources
2: yeah i read an interesting article uh rolling stone from like 73 and the interviewer was asking about like how his life was different because he was blind and he was explaining that his parents didn't really treat him different and he went to school and everything and that he understood he was different because he was black before he understood that he was different because he was blind and -hmm. i thought that was super potent and i'm sure informed a lot of his protest song i wonder
3: if he'll uh, speak up in some form nowadays, or, you know, cur- what's been currently going on, or if he has.
1: Well, he, he has, too. There was that whole thing when the Colin Kaepernick stuff was first coming in the news. Stevie was, like, headlining uh, Madison Square Gardens or something and started his set by taking a knee. Mm. And I think, like, Trump even commented on it and was like, I never liked Stevie Wonder anyways or some bullshit. But, yeah, he's he's still fully aware of what's going on and staying involved you know the age of 70 which is awesome yeah
0: i wonder as i go off the topic what kind of tech is stevie using these days to make his music i'm just wondering is he on ableton
2: he's running algorithms I i don't know you know what i'm saying what he's like got brain readers like making algorithms based on his like electrical impulses or something Dude, yeah he just
1: he just hooks his braids up to a computer and just sits there composing records without moving
0: it's just like all right it's chill okay here we go
1: yeah <laughs> i mentioned this during the last break but i had read that he has recorded two full albums in the past few years that just have not been released for some reason so we're waiting for this uh back-to-back stevie wonder dropping the heat in 2020
0: Right, his long awaited Stevie album. When was
1: the last time mm-hmm. he released an album?
3: It was 05. 2005. Yep. Wow, so it's been 15 years. Time to love.
1: And from the tracks I've heard it's a pretty cool album, too. It's way better than you would expect from you know a, a 60s musician dropping a record in 2005.
0: And you know he's got features. If he had features back in the 80s, <laughs> he was uh, also, you got to give it to Stevie being the first to just be having these features. All his albums just like, oh yeah, I'm going to get Jeff back in here. You know what I mean? Who, yeah. Not that I I, can, I just can't think of any right now, but I don't know anybody else who was doing. I know people were like those those circles of like British music people like that. But like he had a lot of features on all his albums of just really famous people, like big names, always mm-hmm. helping him on these tracks. And you know he's doing that on this new stuff. Yeah, totally. Because he was featuring on them He was featured on that Drake song and on Travis Scott's track. Yep. And yep. Uh, something else. Someone. Some. Somebody else like kelsey Lou or somebody but he's,
1: he's been active doing features for a long time now just like laying down some harmonica <laughs> solos on someone else's tracks and he mm-hmm. seems to have just like fully embraced hip-hop from the beginning which is also extremely uncommon from soul musicians of his era most of them did not yeah they were not into the hip-hop when it was happening but he's been guesting on hip-hop tracks since the 80s he was on that really good snoop dogg record bush a few years ago playing harmonica on it
0: oh yeah he's singing on that on that mm-hmm. cam album
1: it's all cam. over the place he's, he's still <laughs> dropping heat he's still so good yeah he also just like from the interviews i watched seems like the most genuinely fun person to hang out with even watch the like carpool karaoke episode he did he just seems <laughs> like the coolest guy <laughs> yeah they're so laid back i'm to worry about anything and just so genuinely funny too mm-hmm. like just hasn't lost anything in it over the years
0: those crazy too is how descriptive his like lyrics are too or his like songwriting you know like uh how he he just hit he explains colors or he you know describes things like about how they look or how they feel and stuff but him being blind you know it's kind of ironic but like mm-hmm. he really has like a lot of those lyrics where he almost kind of just explains things or details things better than people who are, who see, which is crazy.
1: Yeah, that's amazing.
3: That's a good point, Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. G O A T. I guess this is yep. <laughs> this is actually the second time we've featured him on this podcast, correct? Oh, really? I think we what? featured him on the Christmas episode.
1: Oh, oh yeah, right, totally. Right. We did. Uh, yeah, the Stevie Wonder Christmas record for that part of it. So Stevie Wonder now has what, one and a quarter features <laughs> on this podcast? That is
2: more than anyone.
3: Well, yeah, it's more than anyone
1: else, right? Definitely, yeah. The, the greatest American artist of all time has the most features on this podcast. It makes sense. We know what we're doing.
3: My Tupac connections started with Stevie Wonder because I was commenting on one of the songs sounding like Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer, which was featured in the movie Poetic Justice, and mm. that which starred in Tupac and Janet Jackson. And that's where that all started. And there is so, but I have another Tupac connection I wanted to mention. And that would be that Stevie wonder was sampled in perhaps my favorite Tupac song. So many tears off of what album do we guess it would be all eyes me against the world. Oh, me against the world. Okay. Yeah, that, and that was, mm. uh, that sampled the song, that girl, the harmonica from that. Hmm.
0: That's the hit. That's another 80s Stevie hit. Yeah. He was on his way. He was tearing him up. You can't can't say he wasn't in the 80s. There's no, oh, he was watched in the 80s, never.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Man had hits all the way through. I think I've heard you say before, Trevor, that Stevie Wonder just wasn't putting out bad records. No. No. (laughs) Still not. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Like, he just was not. Yeah, he
1: didn't. He didn't start doing it when he was 11. He's sure not doing it now when he's 70.
0: No, nope. yeah, it's too late now. <laughs> too much of a goat now. You can't put even if you did put out a bad record, it would just be good because it's just steep. You know, can put out a record of him just being like, dah, dah. yelling rent yelling random stuff,
3: and you'd still be like, wow, Stevie, dang. So yeah, what I'd listen steep?
1: to that. I'm ready for <laughs> it. So here,
3: at, I buy that for a dollar. We're taking a stance against that scene I mentioned from High Fidelity. There's no Latter-day Sins with Stevie Wonder.
1: Yeah, no sins, only hits.
3: Uh, mm, only only to the uninformed, you know? Exactly. Are there any other stances <laughs> we, we want to take while we got the soapbox out here?
1: No, I think
0: we already like, kind of said that he's the greatest. Yeah,
3: so.
1: yeah I, I think that's been fully established. We've convinced everybody that will ever hear this episode that he's the greatest. So I think it's time to just go out on the closing track. It's wrong, Apartheid. Oh, wait, we're not we're not,
0: we're not about to play Overjoyed? We got to play Overjoyed. <laughs> real quick. We got to touch down on
3: Overjoyed real quick. I didn't know, if, I didn't know we were wrapping well, it we up. We could play Overjoyed yeah. and then just come back real quick and go out on Apartheid. Uh,
1: we could do that. We can make this a okay. longer episode. I mean, he's the greatest living musician, so we got to play that extra track for Let's him. Let's
3: do Overjoyed. We'll come back and talk and then go out on Apartheid.
1: All right, cool. Okay.
4: Time I've been building my castle of love just for two, though you never knew you were my reason. I've gone much too far for you now to say. That I've got to throw my castle away some other day and though you don't believe that they do
2: Back cover finally makes sense to me. I don't know if is everybody holding their copy in front of them? I'd like to our <laughs> listeners to imagine everybody's holding a copy of this at all times. You can imagine that. <laughs> so the back cover has Stevie Wonder and he's wearing a a pretty wacky shirt that looks like a disheveled net, but he's holding a bunch of dead leaves in his hand for some reason. And I was confused at first, but he is actually playing the crushed leaves in that song. So,
3: The environmental sounds? I'm
2: guessing that's where that came from. Yeah.
3: When I say that this man is the goat...
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, where does I that say on the back cover?
3: <laughs> so he recorded all those sounds himself. He he went the Stephen Halpern route.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like rubbing pebbles together and dripping water, and yeah.
0: He's like, oh, I'm gonna need these these stones dropped in the pond. Well,
2: <laughs> okay, and
0: who they were all everybody was doing that in like 2001. Those R&B songs with little water droplets and stuff. Yeah, little, boop, little
1: definitely stuff. Still ahead. Still ahead of his time.
0: Yup. Ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that there's those ambient sounds that obviously tons of people have used before, but he's doing it in a percussive way, which I feel like I haven't quite heard a similar reproduction to how far he went with that track. It's amazing. It's just so innovative, so interesting, the choices he keeps making with the music. What a
3: beautiful song. Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it
3: is.
0: That's the little hit.
1: So I don't know if we mentioned this, but part of the concept of this album is that the first side is all dance, party, love songs, and the second side is all more conscious and political-themed songs. Mm -hmm. So that was the second-to-last song on the album. And, and, you know, something I was kind of thinking about with Stevie Wonder, too, is, you know, he has a lot of these very fun party songs and a lot of these very serious songs all the way throughout his career. And I feel like maybe you could look at that and think that they kind of are at odds with each other. But the vibe I got more from watching interviews with him is that he has this idea that he wants everyone to be able to achieve this level of you know pure joy and happiness that se- he seems to have. But he's always understood that sometimes you have to have some very serious, painful discussions and actions to achieve that. And he's mm-hmm. he's not afraid of fully embracing both sides of that concept. Yeah, you can't just let Absolutely. that stuff fester. We
3: need you, Stevie, drop another record.
1: I gotta stay quiet
0: <laughs> after that one. You just gotta let that. <laughs> that's be like, on the on the end note.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. so. Uh, unless anyone else has any closing thoughts, I think we can sign off and play the last song on the album here. It's wrong. Apartheid. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to another episode. I've been Sean Hartman.
2: My name is Jeremy Ruggles.
1: I'm Trevor. Been Trevor Coleman the whole time.
2: Hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Trevor, is there any anything you want to drop for the people to check out? Any like music you're involved In, with, plugs? perhaps?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. We just dropped the tape today. Uh, it's uh, it's called We on Your Head. And it's uh, released off Free World Vessel from a group called All Too Human. And if you purchase a cassette off of our Bandcamp, we're donating all of it, all the proceeds to Black Socialists, Black Socialist nonprofit organization that's going out towards bailing out all our brothers and sisters who are protesting right now.
1: And uh, yeah, you can find it on Bandcamp.
2: Fantastic. That
1: rules. Definitely going to check that out. You want to repeat the link for the people one more time?
0: Yeah, Bandcamp.com Free World Vessel. All proceeds going towards Black Socialist nonprofit organization. Also, it's going towards Black Vision Collective too. I don't know why I missed that. Two or, <laughs> right two on. nonprofit organizations. All the proceeds for our cassettes. Yep. Excellent.
2: Excellent. I'm gonna order one like in one minute and thirty seconds when we're done here
1: same nice nice
3: gracias (laughs) all right
2: all you listeners got to do it too so that was trevor pedro say goodbye to him
3: this is peter cook goodbye
2: peace peter (laughs) peace (laughs) to
3: you and also with you we appreciate you listening to another fantastic episode of i'd buy that for a dollar if you enjoyed that and want to hear more similar to it but on covering different albums you can go to our website i buy that we have all of the episodes there please check them out there keep listening keep supporting us keep spinning those records thank you